Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning and we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are strong to save and you are faithful in love today. And we praise you for the way that you have covered over us and our sin and brought us into new life with you. So would you speak to us now by your word, by the power of your spirit, Help me to uh, preach the word with faithfulness today and that all of us would listen with humility and grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. What's the big deal about marriage? Right? If relationships come, relationships go, marriage is just one of them. If it's not working out, just move on. Why make such a big deal about it? I hope that I've begun to answer some of those kinds of objections last week as we considered how marriage has been designed imbued with purpose and defined by God. However, the realities of our broken Genesis 3 world do raise some questions here because marriage has become much more challenging with sin and evil involved. It can be much harder to unite lives effectively keep loving well, and then stick it out for good. Even just mentioning broken marriages can open up all kinds of wounds, even in this room. Our culture seems to have adjusted, right? Treating marriage more casually, take it or leave it. So should we be as committed to the institution of marriage even when it is so marred? I believe actually so. We need to retain a biblically accurate, non-idolatrous, yet high view of marriage. Because there are high spiritual stakes for you and your spouse, maybe your kids, your community around you. But there are also sky-high emotional and physical stakes here on the ground. Many hearts have been damaged and homes have been destroyed by not taking what we'll talk about today seriously enough. Just last week, we started a new series as a church that we're calling Home Life, talking about how our new life in Christ impacts our everyday lives at home. And we're centering this series around the relationships that we have at home or that we don't have at home. We began with marriage, though, and we'll continue on this subject for several weeks. If you're here and you're unmarried, I still think you need to hear what the Bible has to say about this. Whether it's for preparation for a future marriage you may be in one day, or even just for healthier understanding of the marriages that you experience all around you all the time. But today, we'll be jumping around to various passages 
but we will be starting back in Genesis 2, where we were last week. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to there, Genesis 2, and then we'll go to some other ones as well. But the big idea that I want to get across and teach you about today is marriage being a covenant. And covenant is a bit of an archaic term that not many people necessarily understand. But covenants are hugely significant in Scripture, and marriage is one of the most so. So what are they? Well, first of all, unlike natural relationships, covenants are relationships that people choose to enter into. Like, you didn't choose your mother or father, or your brother or sister, or your children even. Thus, those are not true covenant relationships even if you love them dearly. Secondly, a covenant relationship has binding obligations on those who choose to enter it. It will usually include or be sealed by promises, commitments, or vows. Now, there are other relationships that we choose to enter that are not as serious as covenants. You could call them contractual or even consumer relationships. For example, you may have signed a contract with your employer or your landlord or a bank or a credit card provider or a car dealership or a phone company or an internet provider. Like, if you think about it, for adults, much of our lives are dictated by the contracts that we've entered into. Essentially, these are business arrangements involving an exchange of goods or services. So one side agrees to provide something, let's say mobile data, and in exchange, they give that for something else. In this case, your money. However... If one party ceases to fulfill their side of the exchange, the contract is broken. So say your mobile carrier gets bought out by a competitor, or you stop paying your bills. If that happens, either the contract gets renegotiated, or it gets voided, perhaps with some penalties. Now, our culture tends to classify marriage as being in that category of contract. We promise to, to love and cherish one another as long as we both hold up our end of the bargain. As long as they are meeting our needs and the cost to us is still acceptable. And we continue on. But if the exchange of goods is interrupted or we cease to make a profit, so there's more pain than gain, then it only makes sense to cut our losses and void the contract. Your feelings of love may wane, or your life situation changes, or your dreams don't jive, or your spouse grows lazy or irritating or boring or overweight. Oh well, we tried. That's not God's intent for marriage at all. Marriage is not contractual. It's covenantal, which combines aspects of both personal love relationships 
and legal contractual arrangements. We enter a covenant by choice, and we make promises about what we will do and give, but we don't barter about services. We agree to give ourselves 100% to the other. Regardless of what your spouse gives, you give yourself to them because you promised, because it's right, and because it glorifies God. As Tim and Kathy Keller describe it, a covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. Those two things combined, law and love. And they go on, it is now considered common sense that love must be the response to spontaneous desire, never a response to a legal oath or promise. But the Bible perspective, biblical perspective is radically different. Love needs a framework of binding obligation to make it fully what it should be. A covenant relationship is not just intimate despite being legal. It is a relationship that is more intimate because it is legal. The willingness to enter a binding covenant far from stifling love is a way of enhancing, even supercharging it. Say, think of it this way. Okay? If you are dating or living with someone but not married to them, you are constantly trying to prove your worth to them by impressing them or enticing them. And that's because at that point, you're still in a consumer relationship. But a deeper, legal, loving, covenant bond gives you security in the relationship. You can truly open up, drop the masks, and stop selling yourself and be yourself, and be vulnerable, and be lovingly intimate on another level. So, that's what a marriage covenant is. And I hope that you're starting to get a sense for why we should take this so seriously. But let me show you from the Bible why the covenant of marriage matters so much. First of all, I'll give you this point. In marriage, we enter a covenant united by God. It's arguably the most important reason. In marriage, we enter a covenant united by God. Look again at Genesis 2 and in verse 24. It's going to sound familiar now. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this comes right after God created Eve for Adam and basically walked her down the aisle to him. So God's already orchestrating things. But focus on two words there in verse 24, where it says, hold fast. Hold fast. Other versions say to be joined to or be united to, or the old King James, cleave unto. This is a term that scholars say combines passion with permanence. Passion and permanence. There's a covenant for you. Passion and permanence. The Hebrew word literally means to stick two things together permanently, like with glue. Have you ever accidentally gotten a couple fingers stuck together with super glue? <laughs> or crazy glue or gorilla glue? How do you get them apart? You basically have to, to cut or rip skin away from a finger to separate them. And you cannot separate them without damaging what's been glued together. Now question, 
Who does the gluing or the joining or uniting in this picture of marriage? Why don't you turn over in your Bibles to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. So the beginning of the New Testament now. The page numbers will be on the screen, I believe, if you don't know where that is. Matthew 19. Jesus is talking here, and in verse 5, he quotes Genesis 2, what we just read. Verse 5, and he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then catch it. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So who does the joining together? God does. Like you might call it a, a mystical union, uh, a supernatural bond, a divine relationship. But, but when a husband and wife enter into a marriage covenant, God plays an active part in uniting the spouses together. That's why if someone breaks faith with their spouse, they break faith with God at the same time. Proverbs 2.17 says that a woman committing adultery forgets the covenant of her God. See, there are horizontal and vertical aspects to every true marriage. God is the giver of marriage and the gluer of marriage, if you will. And he's also the chief witness to a marriage covenant. Therefore, no matter how many human witnesses are at a wedding, God is present there. Our vows are made under his sanction. And if we break them, we're answerable to him. That's why whenever we officiate a wedding, we remind people that we gather in the sight of God. I don't know if you ever noticed before how traditional Christian wedding vows include two aspects to it, both a set of questions and a set of promises. Like first, do you take this man or woman to be your husband or wife? I do. But they aren't talking to each other there. They're speaking to witnesses, most primarily to God. They're essentially making a vertical vow to God before horizontally addressing each other with vows like, I take you to be my lawful wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold. And those vows, vertical and horizontal, found the, form the foundation of the covenant that we enter into. Just like God in Ezekiel 16 recounts doing himself when he covenanted with his people, said, I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Now keep a, a finger or a paper there in Matthew 19 and flip back a handful of pages to Malachi chapter 2, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 2. In this passage, the prophet Malachi is confronting the people of Israel over their unrepentant sin. And one of these sins was men who were being faithless to their wives, either through adultery or divorce or abandonment. And it's one of the, the clearest places to identify marriage as a covenant in Scripture. 
Follow along in verse 13, where it says this. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. So notice, the Lord was witness to their marriages. Okay? The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Yeah, wife by covenant. If you are married, you have a husband by covenant or a wife by covenant. And then look at what verse 15 says. Did he not make them one? Who makes them one? God does. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Now, what does that mean to, to, that God put a portion of the spirit in their union? Now, interpreters aren't actually really certain here. But it seems to at least say that there was something deeply spiritual about marriage. That God, by his spirit, is intimately involved in uniting a marriage together. Again, emphasizing the point that in marriage, we enter a covenant united by God. Now, does this sound like a relationship we should ever treat lightly? No. I think that only becomes stronger as we study scripture more. Here's a second point for you. In marriage, we enter a covenant that demands faithfulness. In marriage, we enter a covenant that demands faithfulness. What does Malachi 2 seem to say is the opposite of honoring a marriage covenant? Let's read some again. Starting in verse 14. Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God speaking? Seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. The opposite of covenantal love is being faithless. So, then what should happen within a covenant? Faithfulness. Right? If I asked you the question, what's at the heart of marriage? How would you answer? Love, devotion, service, Sexual intimacy, romance, compatibility, friendship. I'd suggest that more than anything, faithfulness is at the heart of a marriage. Anything else might wane or, even, or fluctuate at times or even be lost. But a marriage is preserved or broken in as much as faithfulness is preserved or lost. You might argue that love would be, that love, true, 
biblical, self-sacrificial love is at the heart of marriage. And I will talk about what love's part is to play in a bit. But maybe we don't need to choose. After all, the Bible has a good Hebrew word for love. We actually talked about it a lot this summer. Hesed, right? means loving kindness or steadfast love or loving faithfulness. And it's used most often to describe the covenantal love of God. It's a great word to use here. And so Christopher Ashe concludes, Faithful, steadfast love is the heart of marriage. For faithful, steadfast love is the heart of the universe. The faithful, steadfast, passionate lover God calls men and women to show faithful, steadfast, passionate love in their marriages. So, if you're married, I would encourage you today, urge you to commit anew to being 100% faithful to your spouse. Don't dream of breaking your vows, whether through divorce, adultery, even pornography. Like Malachi says here, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And he goes on, so guard yourselves again in your spirit and do not be faithful, faithless. There are so many dangers that can threaten our marriages. But picture yourself as you're taking up arms against these dangers and standing guard. Like if you were out camping and you heard that a, a rabid man-attacking bear was on the loose in the area. Even if you're a pacifist, you try to get your hands on some kind of weapon. Right? So you could be ready to try to fend off any attack that comes your way. And in marriage, most attacks won't be obvious or external. They're internal, inside of us. That's why Malachi says to guard yourselves in our spirits. In case you don't know, Satan would love to destroy your marriage. And he'll start with little attacks in your heart and in your mind. So be on guard. Also, if you're single or dating, even engaged, you are planting seeds now for either faithfulness or unfaithfulness. In your life, godly character is either being developed or damaged right now. And if you are creating habits of sexual looseness, carelessness, or untrustworthiness now, not only are you being unfaithful to God now, you will make it significantly more difficult to be faithful in a potential marriage down the road. So be on guard. Watch out. Now the specific target of Malachi 2 is faith, faithlessness in divorce. Look at verse 16. It says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, the translation of this verse isn't overly clear either. Some interpret this to say God hates divorce. Others, like this version, interpret it as the man who divorces hates his wife. I think that's actually the more accurate translation here. Either way, it clearly shows that there's an opposition from God to divorce. And it seems to say that it's doing a form of violence to a relationship. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. But some of you might say, That's, that seems too old-fashioned or inflexible or unsympathetic. I'm sure divorce hurts and it's unideal, but there are plenty of reasons to get divorced. But are there? If you think this way, you may be surprised to hear who shared your view. The Pharisees. The Pharisees, like we think of Pharisees, we think legalistic, hardline, like hardcore legalists. But on this subject, Jesus actually took the stronger, stricter view than they did. And we see this in Matthew 19, which you can turn back to now. Over Matthew 19, Jesus' words that we read earlier came in the middle of a discussion about divorce. And he says in verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Some taught this, that men could divorce their wives for any reason at all. If she displeased him in any way, he could just walk out of the marriage, abandoning her. And that's when Jesus said, He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Like, but the law says it was once allowed. So why wouldn't it still be allowed now? Huh, Jesus? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, God allowed divorce temporarily under exceptional circumstances because of people's hard hearts. It was a concession and not God's intention, which means, one, divorce isn't inherently sinful in and of itself, because God allowed it, all right? But two, as it wasn't that way from the beginning, it is a result of sin. And three, it can often lead to other sins, As he says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now Jesus essentially, in this passage, calls us to return to God's original design and reject divorce. Because divorce is a violation of a covenant. It separates what God has joined together. The union that marriage creates should only be broken in extreme circumstances. 
Now, Jesus does say that these extreme conditions do exist. Right? Sometimes people's hearts are so hard because of sin that the covenant is totally violated to the point where we no longer need to try to save it. In the specific case of sexual immorality or adultery, Jesus says divorce is permitted. It's okay. Though it's not required. As Pastor David Platt adds here, he says, Divorce is possible after adultery, but it is not inevitable. How can a marriage survive adultery? By the power of the gospel. For a spouse who's committed adultery, forgiveness is possible for you before God and before your spouse when you repent and you trust in Jesus' love. And for those whose spouse has been unfaithful to you, restoration is possible with your spouse by the power of Jesus' love in you. The same love that enables him to forgive lives and abides in you. So it is permitted, though not required. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul adds a second permissible grounds for divorce. Willful abandonment specifically thinking of Christian spouses who are deserted by non-Christian spouses. So adultery and abandonment. These are the only biblical exceptions that are made for divorce. And if you find yourself in those sad situations, you should not feel any shame over a divorce. You might ask about a third A word, abuse. Shouldn't divorce be allowed in cases of abuse? Well, let's first be extremely clear that abuse of any fellow image bearer of God's is a heinous evil. And we should use almost every tool we can to intervene and stop abuse in its tracks. But can or should we use divorce? My answer is, it depends. It depends. It's really a case-to-case basis. I would say it depends on the type of abuse, the severity, the frequency, and if there's repentance, true repentance. But I have read fairly convincing arguments, I think they convinced me, that abuse can fall into the category of sexual unfaithfulness and or the category of abandonment. So I'd lean there, that yes, it is permissible. And if you are abusing your spouse, don't you dare abuse God's word and trap her in that tyranny. Don't you dare. But as we read these, let's all recognize that the Bible gives two, maybe three possible reasons for divorce. And how many reasons, like how many irreconcilable differences will people use today? As far as remarriage goes, it appears to me that remarriage is permissible, of course, after death, 
but also after a biblically permissible divorce for the offended party. Otherwise, Jesus says it's adultery. Some of you here have been divorced in your past, maybe for acceptable reasons, maybe not. Some of you listening may be remarried too. And what I would urge you to do is if, looking back, you know that you sinned in breaking your covenant, let me urge you, run to Jesus today. Run to Jesus. I'm not trying to just make you feel guilty today, but if there's guilt, then there's also mercy and grace available to you. Maybe, maybe your situation, you need to attempt reconciliation of some kind. Maybe that's not possible at all. Maybe you need to commit yourself to staying single so as to not sin further. And maybe there are still sins in your heart that you need to turn away from. But I know for sure that you can be forgiven and freed and that this need not define you any longer. Because even when we were all unfaithful to him, God was faithful to his promises. And Jesus shed his blood to save us from our sin and to establish a new covenant with us. So come to him. Run to him. If you have perhaps been considering divorce lately, maybe even threatening divorce on unbiblical grounds, I would plead with you to stop considering it as an option. Take it off the table. Biblical grounds, totally different story. But do not... Add sin to sin. I know that can be really hard, but that's actually why you made a covenant. Vowing to love each other for better and for worse. <laughs> Through poverty, sorrow, and sickness. By the way, there are reputable studies today that show that two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if only they stay married and don't divorce. Also, if you are persevering through a difficult marriage today that maybe seems to be breaking, let me encourage you to carry on with Christ as your example. Keep your covenant. As John Piper puts it, staying married is not mainly about staying in love. It is about keeping covenant. It's about being faithful. Like staying in love is the overflow of that. Being faithful even when your spouse seems less committed than you. Like we are certainly less committed to Jesus than he is to us. And yet he is faithful. He's, he's the perfect spouse. He will never leave his bride. And our marriages are meant to reflect that. So, in marriage, we enter a covenant united by God that demands faithfulness. You might think that that sounds kind of cold, even scary. This does not sound warm, loving, romantic, or beautiful like marriage should be. Let me encourage you to think again. Remember what a covenant consists of, law and love, permanence and passion, 
duty, and delight. And I think that we can see this truth in Scripture too, that in marriage, we enter a covenant that is sealed by love. In marriage, we enter a covenant that is sealed by genuine, true love. And we've seen hints of this already. Malachi 2.14 says that the wife by covenant is also your companion. It's a friend, a partner in life, a blessing from God. Also, it says two verses later that a man who divorces his wife does not love her. The implication being that if we are faithful to our covenant, it's an expression of love. And both Genesis 2 and Matthew 19 have mentioned the one flesh union, which, as we talked about last week, is intended to include plenty of delight. Now, when I say sealed by love, I don't mean by love what our world means by love, as if it were just mainly an emotion or a feeling or a desire. No, that's wishy-washy love. Love, the way the Bible speaks of love, is solid, strong, and sacrificial. You can measure how much you love someone, not by what you want from them, but by how much you want to give of yourself to and for them. Let's turn to one final passage for today. It's in Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is, is like a a sensual, poetic tribute to covenantal marital love. It contains songs that are written back and forth between a young bride and her husband, likely Solomon. But at one of the poetic climaxes of the book, listen to this description of love. Song of Solomon 8, starting in verse 6 and then verse 7 as well, says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, and as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. You know what a seal is, right? No, not the aquatic mammal. It's like a, a king's royal seal stamped into melting wax on an official document. And the, a seal, if you think about the imagery, a seal melts firmly where it's placed. It doesn't come off. It holds fast to it. You could maybe try to scrape it off, but it still leaves a mark there. The bride asks her groom to make her like a seal on his heart or on his arm, like a, a tattoo. That's covenantal language right there. She wants to be united to him permanently, but also affectionately on his heart and proudly on his arm. She wants his love. Why? Because love is not cheap or weak or flimsy. It's strong and secure. Love is as strong as death. Can you beat death? No. Jesus can, but you sure can't. 
Death is one of the strongest, most unstoppable forces we know. And she says, love is as strong as that. It will hold me fast no matter what. And jealousy, good jealousy, is as fierce as the grave. It'll fight off anything or anyone that tries to destroy the love. It goes on. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Like true love is defined by God and its holy passion actually comes from God. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Stop there. It means if waters or floods, any kinds of disasters or crises or pandemics or whatever are killing your love, perhaps it's not true, strong, godly love. Maybe it's a a self-focused love that's not giving you what you want. Maybe it's an idolatrous love that's looking for things that love can't give you. Because a true covenant of love, nothing can quench or drown it for good. And finally, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he'd be utterly despised. You can't buy love. It wouldn't be love if you could. True love begs for covenantal stability and security. We want it to last forever. Echoing G.K. Chesterton, Tim and Kathy Keller point out how when we fall in love, we have a natural inclination not just to express affection, but to make promises to each other. Lovers find themselves almost driven to make vow-like claims. I will always love you, we say when we are at the height of passion. And we know that the other person, if he or she is in love with us, will want to hear those words. They go on to say, when two people genuinely love each other and are not simply using one another for sex, status, or self-actualization, they don't want the situation to ever change. Each wants assurances of enduring commitment, and each delights to give those assurances. So, have you pledged your love to another in covenant? If so, keep your promise. But also, don't ever stop reassuring them of it. Like even when you don't feel love, commit to living it out anyway. After all, love is an action more than it is an emotion. I mean, if you have kids, you treat them that way, loving them no matter how they treat you. Meanwhile, if, if you stop serving, giving to praying for, or loving your spouse simply because you don't feel much love for them anymore, that's like a contract, not a covenant. So, which one did you make before God? I guarantee your love will be stronger for your spouse down the road if you practically love them even when you don't feel the warm fuzzies. It will strengthen your covenant, and your feelings will usually, eventually, follow. In marriage, we enter a covenant united by God that demands faithfulness and is sealed by love. I hope that this covenant doesn't only appear morally appropriate to you, 
but richly attractive to you. And yet, and yet, we still feel so much brokenness in the midst of these relationships. So while we may rejoice in what a marriage covenant should look like, we may also feel the tension that this hasn't been our reality, or it seems out of reach. So let me close with one final point that applies to everyone here. Right? Married or unmarried, divorced, remarried, victims of divorce, faithful, faithless, widows who miss marriage, children destined to be hurt one day by these relationships, those with broken hearts now, all of us broken people. Don't despair. Don't give up on love. Don't just bail on it all. Because we have a Savior who steadfastly loves us and can redeem us from anything. So, in marriage, we enter a covenant that is modeled by Christ. Or if you're not married, you can say we see a covenant modeled by Christ. His love for us is so strong that he went through death to demonstrate it. Love is stronger than death. His affections for us are so fierce that he burst out of the grave to give it. He set us as a seal upon his heart. And he bears the marks of love on his arms. Any faithfulness we have must come from the faithfulness he has shown to us. I don't have time to have us turn there, but do you know the book of Hosea in the Old Testament? In it, God describes his love for his wayward people in amazing ways. He says that his people have been playing the whore. His words, not mine. As they were constantly going astray and going after other gods. And God is the, is the absolutely faithful spouse. And they were obstinately faithless. God, listen, God has been in a difficult marriage. He knows what it's like. And we can feel his pain and see his perseverance. But at the peak of their unfaithfulness, right when you think God would give up on them, he decides, I'm going I'm to draw you back to me. I'm going to allure you back to me. And he then reaffirms his covenant to them with these words in Hosea 2, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. This is the kind of covenant love that God demonstrated to all of us through Jesus Christ. Though we deserve to be deserted or even divorced by him, 
he holds fast to us. Even at, at the peak of our abandonment and betrayal of him, he stayed on the cross. He can unfathomable faithfulness. He stayed on the cross. Christopher Ash concludes, what you and I need most of all is to know the steadfast, faithful love of the God who has never broken a promise yet. He is utterly faithful and trustworthy. And see, when we live out of this security, it changes all our relationships for good. So in a broken world full of broken homes and broken marriages and broken hearts, hear God's heart for you and me. Like if you feel broken, let him speak peace to you today. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never leave you. He is our ultimate stability, security, and sanctuary, not sinful husbands and wives. By God's grace, our relationships can reflect his glimpses of his faithful love for us. But let's not look to them for our ultimate fulfillment, but instead look to Jesus, the mediator and guarantor and groom of a better eternal covenant. God has been, is, and will be faithful to his covenant of love. May we be faithful to ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you indeed speak peace to us this morning? I know there are likely wounds that have been opened up. So would you heal those wounds? In your mercy, forgiveness, and grace, and kindness, speak your peace to us today. Show us more than anything else your incredible faithful love for us. And may that change our lives, change our relationships for the better forever. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.